This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Trust what my heart tells me, because the essence of my life, the soul of me, is what never changes. There are certain things I want to tell my nieces and my grandnieces before I check out. Maybe they already know. They are all a lot smarter than I will ever be. But along with the title of crazy old auntie has come some wisdom. Okay, dear nieces, one and all, here is my list. Take note. Life is too short to hate your thighs. No one ever got smarter or kinder because of the size of their thighs. Please try to remember that you are a human being and not a chicken part. Life is not airbrushed. For about 20 seconds when you are 19 years old, you have perfectly flawless skin and great hair. This is just before you start to age by advertising standards. Screw advertising standards. The lines in your face and on your hands will tell you more about character and substance than unlined skin or silky hair. And trust me, only women in shampoo commercials have hair that silky. The rest of us either have mouse fur or horse manes that no amount of the right shampoo can change. But I digress, so I'll repeat. Life is not airbrushed. It is not supposed to be. It is full of flaws, imperfections, and messiness. If your life doesn't contain these three elements, then you're not really living. Life is not nearly as fun, polite, or smiling as what's posted on Facebook. Social media is not reality. No one smiles that way with their husband, their partner, their boss, or their friends all the time. In reality, People sneer, stare, space out, and chew with their mouths open. Be real, be vulnerable, be authentic, and be yourself. And don't waste too much time on social media. Your weight is not a gauge of your worth, and neither is your bank balance. You are a lovable, precious, beautiful woman, and it's the contents of your heart that matters. Assess yourself and others by that single factor, the contents of the heart, and you can never go wrong. Don't be afraid to speak up and be first. You don't always have to take the smallest portion or sit in the aisle seat instead of next to the window. Claim the drumstick at Thanksgiving. Don't always tell people it's okay when your feelings get hurt. Take the time for self-care. Believe me, your family will not starve or wither away because you took the time to nurture your own self. You don't always have to come last. 
Never stop reading. Fill your head and your heart with adventures and history, with fantasy and tales. Learn something new every day. It keeps us young. Don't freak out about getting old. It doesn't have to be life's buzzkill. Instead, make sure you eat well. Yes, that means vegetables. And get outside and exercise every day. This is what really makes a difference when you push past the half-century mark. Be a sister to all women. We are alive in a country at a time when women's rights can never be taken for granted. Let's make sure that we always advocate for women's empowerment and commit to helping other women, not judging them. Practice gratitude every day. Life is shorter than we think. We demonstrate that we love life by celebrating it. It's a total cliché, but that's because it's so true. Make the time to dance, sing, and most of all, laugh. Know that I love you. May your life be rich with love and goodwill, and may you never forget your crazy old auntie. I will keep you close in my heart forever writes Stephanie Raffalock in her book, A Delightful Little Book on Aging. Valeria interviews Stephanie Raffalock, a graduate of Naropa University's program in writing and poetics. She has penned articles for numerous publications, including The Aspen Times, The Rogue Valley Messenger, Nexus Magazine, Omaha Lifestyles, Care2.com, and 60andMe.com. A recent transplant to Austin, Texas, Stephanie enjoys life with her husband, Dean, and their Labrador retriever, Jeter. Yes, named after the great Yankee shortstop. Her website is stephanieraffalock.com. Here is the interview with Stephanie Raffalock. In your own words, who is Stephanie Raffalock? Stephanie Raffalock is an aging woman who is falling in love with life with each passing year. And Stephanie Raffalock is an uplifter of other women who wants other women to know that age has nothing to do with value or worth in the world. That's all inside of us and that we would do well to embrace these older years and become the the wise elders that we were intended to be. How wonderful. I love your message. You know, we'll be exploring that subject in the moment in depth. So before we talk about your book and specifically about the message about aging, I know your book, the title is A Delightful Little Book on Aging, and it's truly delightful. I love the colors, the little, uh, you call them the pocket inspirations? They're yes. so cute. Oh my God, I love them. I have them in front of me now. I have not read them yet, one or two perhaps, but not all of them. What was the inspiration to make them? Authors usually put together some kind of swag yeah. <laughs> at, at book fairs and whatnot. And so, and those things are anything from magnets to keychains 
chains to bookmarks, you know, I've seen some really creative and clever stuff. And I wanted to do something a little bit different. And I've always been uh, enchanted with divination cards, whether that was tarot decks or medicine cards, or years ago, there was a little deck called angel cards that were about the size of the inspiration cards that you have. They're just little like half the size of a business card I just loved them and the idea that you would pick one out of a bowl every day and that it would say something positive about life so that's where the idea for pocket inspirations came from that it would be a small card like the angel cards and that I would use quotes from my book and I would give them away and in fact when people were pre-ordering my book I offered them as a giveaway And if your listeners would like some, maybe you and I can work something out so I can send these off to some of your listeners. Um, But they're just sweet little cards. And like I said, inspired by book swag. Right. Those are so cute. I just opened, picked one today. And it says, I always want to ask the question, am I living life true to my heart? So that is a powerful question, if we can all answer yes to that one. Yes. What is another word for aging, Stephanie? Growing. Mm, Yeah. What does it mean to be a human? To get lost in the rapture of the experience. (laughs) Yeah. When you say lost, what do you mean by that exactly? Lost, I mean like a kind of surrender to the experience of life. You know, we walk around a lot thinking about the meaning of life, but to experience life is, I think, what we we really are looking for. What is life to you? Life is millions of dancing molecules (laughs) that get kind of pushed together into what we take for reality or a reality. What do you think is the opposite of life? The opposite of life is, I'm going to use the word beyond. You know, none of us really knows. It's like when we get to the edge of life and we transition, there's all kinds of religious theories and philosophical theories about what happens, but we know that it's something beyond. And so in the physical form, you know, there is death, but in a consciousness sense, I think that consciousness goes on eternally in some way or another, whether that's a return to the stardust from which we came or there is a, a part of, of memory or sensation that we take with us. That I don't know, but I would say the opposite of life is beyond. I have two more questions related to life itself. Do you think that life has a grand or ultimate purpose for all of us? Yes, I think that we all hear a calling to our purpose at some point in our lives or perhaps through our life. And our purpose could be simple or it could be grand. Um, But I do believe we all have a purpose, yes. Do we have purposes or we only have one purpose in life? I would go with the plural on that. You know, that um, depending on where one is in life, you know, your your purpose when you're a kid is to just kind of get to the next day and hopefully have some friends to play with. Your purpose as you become a little bit older is, you know, something else. And I think you start to get into the the spiritual aspect, the psychological aspect of purpose as you get older. Um, there's a greater appreciation for that kind of, 
of searching and exploration. So yes, I, I think we have many purposes. And I do believe it culminates into one thing towards the end of life. I do believe that it culminates into how well did you love? Mm. How did you live? Did you give yourself to all of that? So at this time, um, what do you think is the purpose of your life? At this time, the purpose of my life is to encourage and support the women around me. I think there's a great phenomenon happening in the world right now with women discovering that they become more powerful and more creative as they get older, rather than giving into that old stereotype that you're kind of washed up at a certain age. So I want to support that collective growth and also that individual growth in women. My next question has to do with freedom. What is to be free? I think to be free for me is to be comfortable with what is in my life, that there is a freedom of acceptance of the way things are. There is a freedom, on the other hand, for creating change, but that freedom is a Oh boy, it's so hard to put into words. And you ask these such, such lightweight questions. Um, <laughs> a freedom to expand, you know, freedom is a kind of expansiveness, whether it's accepting what is, whether it's creating change, whether it's um, growing into oneself. That's freedom, the freedom to grow, the freedom to change, the freedom to expand. That's how I hold it. Yeah, I love Everything that you said, yeah, that in a way goes back to the other idea you mentioned earlier about surrendering to life and accepting more. I'm going to use the same words again in the beginning of the next question. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? Right. Yes and no. Do I have a vision for a new reality? That That's still something I believe that's forming. But there is a great need in our world right now. And, and part of it is our need to become vulnerable with each other, which I think has happened in these demonstrations that are going on. At the time that we're recording this show, we're in our second week of demonstrations about freedom, about equality. And there is a vulnerability in expressing that and sharing pain with each other that makes us need each other and unify in that way. So there is a need for vulnerability and there's a great need for unification. And what brings people together, I think, more than anything else in their shared pain is a sense of compassion and a sense of loving. And sometimes we have to dig deep to find that because we get so politically divided or we get so divided by ideas and ideals that are unattainable and they're out in the ether somewhere that we forget that, you know, our next door neighbor is still our next door neighbor and they have the same feelings and the same wants, the want of being safe, the want of having love in their lives as we do of ours, regardless of political affiliation or anything else. So I think we have to find a way now to unify. And as far as a vision goes, as I said, that's something that's forming. But in a perfect world, I would see a vision unfold where we celebrated diversity instead of separating out and isolating ourselves like, well, here's this brown group over here and here's this white group over here. Here's the Muslims over here. Let's put the Christians over here. And it's just, you know, it's this isolated, there's walls. So I, 
what I picture in a perfect world is this kind of diversity that we celebrate. It's like, isn't it cool that we're so different? We've found a way to live with each other and love each other in spite of our differences. I mean, basically, that's what families have to do. You know, siblings siblings come out of the box differently. True. You know, I look at my brother and my sister sometimes and I go, are we really from the same litter? <laughs> right, tell me about it, right. <laughs> Family that loves each other, we have learned to live with each other's different ideas, different way of doing things, and we've stayed in love with each other. And that's what the whole world, I think, is looking for right now is that, that basic family value of living together and loving together. Uh, what a wonderful answer. I absolutely love your wisdom already. Ask the, the most interesting, in-depth questions. They make me think. You know, I'm not pulling this stuff off the top of my head. I'm having to sit here quietly within myself and really listen hard to the question. And it's like, where is the deepest answer for that inside this heart that longs to be authentic with others in the world? Kudos to you for the great questions. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie, for being authentic. We need to see more of that in the world, too. So my next question is about love. You mentioned love, compassion. What is love to you? Love is the softest place in the heart that opens to someone else and lets them in fully and cherishes that. I, I just had an experience with the soft part of my heart. I had this beloved dog, a Labrador retriever, that my husband and I adopted 10 years ago. You know, adopting a dog, by the way, is it's like getting somebody else's teenager. So this kind of wild dog that we worked with, and he became a great dog, and we had to put him down last Monday because he had cancer and he was suffering. You know, there was this initial anguish of losing something that we loved so much, But what it gives way to is that soft spot in my heart that opened to him initially and let him in so completely and reminds me in this time of this, this loss and this grief is that's the soft spot that I want to be in touch with. I think sometimes in this world, we don't weep enough. We open ourselves enough or make ourselves tender enough to experience the love that's available to us. Because I've never met a human being that didn't want love and didn't want to give love. I mean, it's that basic. It comes down to that. You're speaking for me and for everybody else in this world. It may be beyond, as you said. What is your understanding and idea of peace, Stephanie? Well, I don't think that peace is conflict-free. I believe it's a, we can learn to deal with conflict in beneficial ways, that peace is a way of, of learning to negotiate and navigate the waters of differences in a way that doesn't blow everything up. So it's not some ideal where it's like, oh, therefore everybody has to be peaceful because you're always going to meet people that you have differences with, right? But if you can find a way to beneficially negotiate and navigate those waters through honest dialogue, through true vulnerability with each other, I think that you can find answers and solutions. I see that in the people that are marching in the streets right now. Most of them are peaceful and they are looking 
for a beneficial solution to an ongoing problem. And it's, we call them peaceful demonstrations, and they are. What, where, and who is God to you? <laughs> wow, that's an amazing question. What, where, and who? What would be an idea and also a feeling? You know, faith is both an idea of something, a concept of something, and a feeling or a sensation thing. So that would be the what of God. The where of God, I would have to say, is internal as much as it is external. The internal feelings of love give us an indication or a clue that um, we have the potential to live in a godlike state. That's not to say we become gods, but that, but we live faith in such a way that we are always brushing up against that. So it was the what, where, and what was the last one? Was it who? Oh. The what is outside of ourselves, but also what is inside of ourselves. You know, there was a um, a guy. Gosh, I'm thinking this is 16th century. Sometimes I get my my years mixed up, but Immanuel Kant took the proofs of the Catholic Church, and they were called theistic proofs, you know, the proof that God exists. And he spent his life disseminating them and tearing them apart so this to say that they were false. And at the end of his life, he said this. He said, you know, I've spent my life's work making false all these theistic proofs of God, and I believe that my work has been good and has been true. But when I look up into the stars at night... I can't help but believe. And I think that the spiritual aspect of God, that the who that God is, that that's kind of where I'm at. I can't say for sure or for certain, but when I look up into the stars at night, I can't help but believe. <laughs> and that makes me think about the word you use again, beyond, it might be beyond intellectual understanding, yeah. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? Sometimes I have met in, I live in Texas and there are a lot of good Christian people in my neighborhood and many of them that I've met walk their talk and tune in and have a, a design for life that is purpose filled and wonder filled. And so I think that there really isn't a gap between religion and spirituality in that case. And yet I've met other people of other religions sometimes or the same religion that there's a seems to be a huge gap between the edicts of the Christ or Muhammad or whoever they're following and how they're actually living life and these are usually the people that get a little preachy a little in your face mm -hmm. a little judgy about what you believe and what you should believe and that's where the big gap is between religion and spirituality. The fact that we concoct religions to hold a set of ethereal beliefs that are so difficult to talk about, I think is a noble cause and a good thing. It's when we get extreme with it and think that our way of holding those beliefs is the only way that we get into trouble, when we concretize beliefs to the point where they are not fluid, where they don't flow, that's where I think we get into trouble. But if you can keep an open heart and an open mind with your religious beliefs and your spiritual beliefs, then I think they will carry you a long way. 
So let's talk about your work. And my first question had to be this one. How did you become a writer, Stephanie? I think I was always a writer that was filled with too much self-doubt to claim it. So I come to writing late. I'm probably the world's oldest rookie writer. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> but when I was when I was a kid, I remember that I liked to draw cartoons and make little stories out of them. And the class that I enjoyed most in school was English. And I had a lot of English teachers that encouraged my love for writing the personal essay or short story. So that stayed with me. And then as a teenager, I wrote lots of poetry, the poetry of unrequited love. We all know what that's like as teenagers. And later in life, I went to work for several production companies when I lived in Los Angeles. And I love, I was fascinated by the writers. I loved the writer, but I felt like that was that world. And I wasn't in that world. And I wasn't good enough to be in that world. And, you know, all the sucky things we tell ourselves when we're growing up are true. We, you know, we have to relearn later on in life. So later on in life, I had this wonderful experience. I, I went to, I returned to school at the age of 35, and I earned a degree in poetic, um, writing and poetics from Naropa. And I started to write, but life kind of intervened with you know, I was married and there was a mortgage and there all these obligations. So I wrote here and there. But as I was getting older and ready to retire, I had an opportunity to teach creative writing. I wasn't in a polite little classroom. The opportunity happened to be at the Jefferson County Detention Center for Women. So I taught incarcerated women what I knew about creative writing, which wasn't a whole lot. But I went week after week and I gave to them. And then I realized these women had very keen bullshit detectors. And if I was going to teach them about writing, boy, I had better walk that talk. Right. So during that time that I was with them, I started to write in earnest. And they were really my muse for the early writing I did. Then I've just kind of gone on from there and I've claimed for myself in these later years that, yes, in fact, I am a writer. I am claiming that I am a philosopher poet. That's an identity that I embrace. And and I sometimes feel a little shy about saying it, which is why I'm saying it here on air. It's going to go out to all these people. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that. Because uh, I, I think agree. that women, as women, we need to do that. Sometimes we just need to put a stake in the ground yeah, yeah. and say, this yeah. is who I am and this is how I am in the world. And I claim it for myself. That's what I claim for myself. And, and that's my little journey for writing. It just, it took me a long time to claim it and name it, but here it is. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. Yeah, you're such a beautiful person and that needs to be expressed so my next question is about the intention of writing your book, a delightful little book on aging. What was the intention, Stephanie? It's a funny title, isn't it? Yeah. What's compelling about the title is seeing aging and delightful in right. the same phrase. It doesn't quite fit. It's, a, it's a, a juxtaposition. This book was a compilation book for me. I had been writing novels up until this point. And I had gone through 
uh, what I would call a baptism by fire with the publishing industry because I'd gotten as far as getting an agent and having things showed to publishers and I would get these great rejection letters that told me how much talent I had and we're going to pass. And so one summer I sat down a couple summers ago and I said, you know, I just want to pull together some of the blogs and articles I've written over the years and write some new stuff. And and I just want to write a delightful little book on aging. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> and so I pulled the pieces together to do that. And it's um, a slim volume of essays about my aging process. It's not a how-to book. It's not really a self-help book. It's just me sharing, this is what it was like for me, because I believe we're all connected by our stories. If it's like, if it's this way for me, it's going to be this way for someone else too. And I think we, we learn a lot when we share our stories with each other. So now I'm in the process of writing a larger work again. And I feel that this little book was such a gift to me, even though it was intended to be a gift to you, it's been a gift to me because it gave me that little boost of confidence that I needed to say, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And failure is a funny thing as we get older. When we're younger and we have failure, it's just heartbreaking. When we're older and we have failure, we think, oh my gosh, am I running out of time? And so I'm here to say, hey, you're not running out of time. There are a lot of women doing things in their older age. I mean, no one would ever say to um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, well, you're too old to be a Supreme Court justice. I mean, you know, she's like the grand, the grand dom of wisdom, you know, in my eyes. Or somebody like a Meryl Streep, well, you're really too young to be in the movies anymore. You know, Meryl Streep has totally disproved that. Or, or who is the woman that won for, um, she won a Golden Globe and Emmy for Best Actress, uh, or not Emmy, I'm sorry, um, Oscar for Best Actress, Renee Zellweger, for her portrayal of Judy Garland. And she's, you know, over 50. And so women are, are stating that, that we can live our dreams out in our older years. We can paint, we can write, we can do art, we can make things. And um, so failure gets, it gets tamped down a little bit. Keep making things, make things till the day you die. Yes, I agree. The chances are we'll be doing whatever it is with more wisdom. So in your book, you say preparing for death has everything to do with how you live life. Talk to me about that. If we are living our lives fully for as long as we possibly can, then death is just the next step because then we will give ourselves to that the same way we give ourselves to life. If we are holding back from living our lives, death becomes more difficult. Maybe we resent the things that we didn't do. Maybe we are upset that we didn't get the closure that we wanted to get, that we didn't forgive or get the forgiveness that we wanted to get. So if we're living life in a way that is true, once again, and we've touched upon this so many times throughout this program, if we are living life with an authentic heart, then death seems like an easy letting go because, you know, if if I died tomorrow and I had one moment to say goodbye, I would say, you know what? I lived life as best I could and as fully as I could for as long as I could. Yeah. And now I'm going to see what's on the other side. <laughs> 
Most of us are afraid of death and we're afraid of aging. And this being the topic is interesting that we're talking about death, uh, living, and then aging. So why are we so afraid of aging? It's a fear that occurs more for women than men or affects all of us. Well, I think it affects all of us, but I, I think that it occurs more for women. The fear of aging occurs more just because of what advertising has done to us and for us. We don't see older women in advertising. And when we do see older women in advertising, they're usually objects of care. They're, you know, they're going to fall down and not be able to get up or they're going to need depends any moment now, or they're going to need, you know, some kind of drug that helps them through this, that, or the other thing. Advertising is not a, a positive reflection, nor is it an accurate reflection of older women. There is a part of older age that is cruel. And it's usually the very last part of life where we recede from life and the systems break down. Mental acuity may break down. That's a limited amount of time. And some people don't experience that so much. They just die of some system breaking down without, you know, losing mental acuity. So advertising, but two, you have to think that, you know, no, no longer being an agrarian culture where families were, were robust and lived together and the grandparents lived with the family and sometimes the great grandparents. We live in these small little bubbles, mom, dad, the kids, that's it. And sometimes not even that. And that contributes to a sense of it being okay to say that aging is um, a lonely, terrible experience and um, besides you don't look that good. And these are outdated, unbeneficial, stereotype attitudes that I encourage all women to look at closely and say, you know what, if you got a face full of wrinkles, embrace them because they got there for a reason. The lines around my eyes and the lines around my, um, that are under my nose and my lips are from smiling. I've got a lot of smiling memories to hang to. If your body is weakening a little bit, adapt. Adaptability is a great trait. We're living in a time of coronavirus and people are kind of like freaking out about it. And as an older person, I have to say, aging takes place against a backdrop of grief and vulnerability. I know how to navigate vulnerability. You adapt. And so while we're figuring out like, well, are we going to have to wear masks forever? Are we going to have to do this forever? That's all about adaptation. And it's a great skill to learn. And that's certainly something that aging thrusts upon you. I don't run anymore. I have some disc degeneration in my back, but I certainly walk. I don't do the same kind of yoga that I used to be able to do but I do chair yoga and I do the positions that I can because I've learned to adapt. So the answers about why do we fear aging, a lot of it is cultural advertising. The biggest part is our own personal attitude about it. If aging is something you fear, it's a good question to explore. Why is it that you fear it? Do you fear death? Do you fear losing your, your physical beauty or your athletic prowess? Learn to see a new beauty. Learn to see a deeper beauty. Learn to do something that isn't maybe as athletic as you used to do, but still gets you out moving every day. Appreciate the slowing down so that you can slow down enough to love life. 
It goes back to those words we used earlier about acceptance. I think surrender was the word we used. Surrender. Yeah, yeah. giving ourselves to life. Just a question came to mind. When did you start thinking about aging? Oh, about the time I hit 60. I've always been a very active woman and something happened to me at 60. I, I had a dream one night that I was underwater and I had met a woman at the bottom of the ocean who was weaving um, nets out of the seaweed that was brought to her by dolphins. And there was something about that old woman that I knew her. It kind of set me on a course of of grappling. I'm going to call it the great grappling that happened at 60. But it was a time of great grappling, of coming to terms with the idea that society may not think that you're as significant or as relevant as you once were, that advertising isn't aimed at you. It's it's aimed at aging as if it were a disease. Aging is not a disease. It's a process. So I was I started to grapple with all of those things. And it was shortly after that that I wrote about it because that gave me a way to explore it. It gave me, gave me a way to examine it and find out what I believed and, and what I thought about it. Journaling is always a good thing, I think, at any time of life, if you like to write. But I think journaling can be done. You don't have to write complete sentences either. You can always do bullet points or one-liners. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a text. I'm wondering if other women, they start thinking about aging earlier in their 40s or even, I don't know, 50s. I think so. I, I think that there's there's some of that. You know, I mean, you go into a, a, a gift store to buy a, a birthday card and there's plenty of birthday cards for 40-year-olds that make, you know, reference to over the hill, that, you know, 40 is somehow over the hill. And I can remember in my 40s thinking that this was a very mature time of my life, but it was still a time in my life where it was um, nose to the grindstone kind of work. And it was about uh, acquiring. It was about success. It was about setting goals. It was about all those kinds of things. And it wasn't really until my 50s that I went, you have to start thinking about something else. You know, you have to start cultivating the, the psycho-spiritual life here. And then, of course, then the next decade, 60 was when I began writing about my my thoughts and my feelings about aging. You mentioned in your book having good friends. It's an important thing. Is that to avoid loneliness or should we think about having good friends throughout life? Oh, I think we should we should think about having good friends throughout life. I had read a study somewhere about how the healthiest aspect of aging, the people in the world that had lived the longest did so not because of what they ate or the exercise they got. They lived longer, happier when they had, were engaged in relationships. And it's, this is such an interesting time, once again, coming back to the whole coronavirus thing, where we're isolated from each other. And while I live in a state that is semi-opened up, I'm not back in groups yet. And I find myself missing those circle of people just the presence, the way the presence of someone else feels in your space. It's not the same as being on a Zoom call. Right. I and um, I have, the, there's a book club that I'm a member of here. And um, I love the women in this book group. We're all very different. We're not necessarily each other's best friend outside of the group, 
But we get together once a month and there's something about seeing the same faces every month and sitting in a circle together and hearing about what's going on in each other's lives that is incredibly nourishing to the soul. And so I think it's important for us to keep making new friends as we get older and to take care of the friendships that we've got and to make sure that our friendships are diverse. I have friends that are very young. I have friends that are older than me. I have friends that are in the middle. But to keep it all all going, I, I don't think there's anything that substitutes for heart nourishment like connection with other people. What makes a good friend? What is to be a good friend? I think a good friend is a good listener. And, you know, and I, I think it comes down to that. We all want to be heard and we all want to be seen and we all want to matter. And that's what we can give each other in this world is to listen, to see, and to let someone else know that they matter in our life. I love that. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me, being around people who listen, right? In a way, I connect that word to understanding, and understanding leads to love, to acceptance, yeah, yes. for us to open up. Yeah, I like that little dot-to-dot connection <laughs> that when you listen, you feel, when, when I am listened to, I feel understood. When I feel understood, that leads to love. And it's back and forth. That's a great little connection. Talk to me about saying no. Why is it so important to learn that lesson? Women, especially because we're nurturers, often say yes to too many things, too many times, and then we get overwhelmed and resentful. And so it's really important as a woman to not only know who you are and what you stand for, it's important to know what your boundaries are. You can't say yes to everything as much as we'd like to sometimes. You just can't. There are only, in, you know, there's a finite number of hours in the day. So I, I think it's important for one is it gives you a, a sense of powerful boundary to be able to say no. And another thing, it keeps us, us, us from just stressing out. Yeah, this is something that we need to practice. Absolutely. Would you say that that's connected to self-love? I do think it's connected to self-love, the ability to say no and not and then not feel guilty about it because you said no, that, you know, that we taking care of yourself sometimes means saying no. It means being able to identify the area of your life where something has become too much where it's causing you stress and messing with your health. It has to become a practice. Like self-love, it is a practice. I believe in unconditional self-love, which might be a even more challenging practice. Well, that's a big, big practice. <laughs> yeah, that's what I practice. Have you heard about that practice? I haven't heard about that practice, but just the title of it is there's a largeness to it that kind of rocks me back a little bit. It's one thing to talk about conditional love because that's easy. I have control of that. I'm on this side of things, right? But unconditional self-love, that's an amazing concept. And, and to come to the, you know, the edges of that, to feel that, to see what does that actually mean to unconditionally love yourself? Wow. What do you see? What's the vision? I think you probably have more knowledge on that practice than I do. I have sometimes felt that my self-doubt in the world kept me honest as far as how I presented my art. So then I ask myself, well, is self-doubt, is that, would that be a component 
of unconditional self-love. And then what about the voices that creep in that question motivation or question a decision? How do you put the overlay of unconditional love on that self-love? Boy, I, I, I would have to go away for <laughs> and really contemplate this. I love the, I, but I love the premise of it. And, and I want to, and I promise you when I get off this call that for the next few days, I'm going to be chewing on that. Mm. What does that, what does that look like wow. to oneself unconditionally? How might my world change because of that? And how might the greater world change because of that kind of unconditional self-love? Right. If you write anything, just send it to me. I'd love to post it. <laughs> what are three things, powerful lessons you would share with young women? Know yourself would be the first one. Make a commitment to live the examined life. And what I mean by that is know what's in your heart, know what's in your psyche, know what you want and stand for something. What do you stand for? That comes all under the heading of know yourself. The second thing I would want young women to know is don't judge yourself by any physicality. It's very, very limiting. Nobody looks the way airbrushed magazine models look. <laughs> Nobody. And love yourself however you are and know that the physical appearance changes all throughout life. You know, the way you looked when you were a baby is different than the way you looked when you're 12 years old. The way you look when you're 12 is different than the way you're going to look at 34 or 44. If you can get into that mindset that you were just talking about of unconditional self-love, that's certainly an arena to practice in, that to love yourself the way that you are. Um, and the third one, boy, what's the third one thing I would want young women to know? Go after your dreams. Just go after your dreams. Throw a stake in the ground and say, I, I claim it. I name it and I claim it. And go after your dreams and don't worry about what anybody tells you. If you're too young, you're too old, you're too this, you're too that, don't listen to them. Go after your dreams big time and let it fill you. And then, it, you know, then success becomes something else. Success is more than just um, kind of public recognition. Success becomes a personal attainment, a quality of excellence that you've arrived at. Would you like to add anything or read a passage from your book before I ask you my final questions? I will say that one of the unexpected things that came from writing this book was that even after the book was published and in its little hardback form and out there in the world, what I noticed that was within me kept growing this idea of wanting to share the message in a myriad of different ways, that my platform as an author really developed even more to want to encourage older women to go, hey, older just means better, more creativity, wisdom, a slowing down that allows you to embrace life and take it in, drink it in. So that was an unexpected gift of that book that um, I just love. And I love coming on programs like yours Oh my gosh, you probably asked the deepest questions of any program I've been on. It's, it's such a delight to share what's in my heart in this way with you, with your listeners, and to learn from it myself. Because every time I do one of these and, and I hear myself talk, I learn something else. That's what it's all about, is learning and growing psychologically and spiritually up to the very, very end. I love, love your wisdom. 
Thank you very much. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life as of today? The hardest thing I had to learn about myself was that I, I learned very early on. I learned in my 20s and 30s that I had very addictive tendencies. And that that was, we all. <laughs> and that was something that I was going to have to monitor throughout my life. You know, initially I rushed head on into 12 step and that was good for me. But really the way that I found to monitor these addictive qualities that I had was some of them I laugh at. I have, a, I have a type A personality. I get up and I write for three hours in the morning. I exercise every day. I have those little type A personality things. And I laugh at them because sometimes they're very helpful and sometimes they're just ridiculous. And then also I found that what monitored things best were diving into the spiritual questions of my life, the psychological questions of my life, and reading things that would inspire me to be a better person in this world, not just an addict. I'm a big fan of Rumi. I'm a big fan of May Sarton. I think that books, a good book can change the way we see the world. And um, that once difficulty, once gut-wrenching difficulty of addiction is something that is part of me, but it's behind me enough that I can cradle it in my arms and, and love it. What are three things about life or yourself or others that make you laugh i'll tell you my my dog always made me laugh mm -hmm. and i think that i will probably rescue another dog here pretty soon because dogs are just wonderful and goofy and they've got that unconditional love thing down they make me laugh kids make me laugh mm -hmm. next door are two twin boys that are i think they're about to turn three and they sometimes they sometimes get free by opening the front door. I remember when they learned to open the front door and they run around in the cul-de-sac and they squeal and they yell and they're so excited about life and living and they're such little boys and they make me laugh. I love that kind of laughter. And I have to say, I'm lucky to be married to a husband who makes me laugh, who just says off the cuff things sometimes that makes me laugh. And I think it's good to find things to laugh at. I think it's good to laugh at yourself. And I think it's good to laugh at life sometimes because sometimes we're pretty ridiculous. Yeah, we get too serious. That's true. <laughs> it has been a wonderful conversation, Stephanie. Thank you so much for your presence, for your amazing wisdom and um, your deep thoughts, deep answers just kind of moved me completely. Truly beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It really was a lovely, lovely experience. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? You can reach out to me at stephanieraffalock.com. That's probably the best place. From that, from that you, find, you can find my book, you can find my Facebook page, you can find my Instagram account, all by going to stephanieraffalock.com. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Stephanie Raffalock, please visit her website, stephanieraffalock.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. 
I want to thank the Patreon members Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <music>